Chapter fifteen of Rural Rides. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Rural Rides by William Cobbett. Chapter fifteen. Rural Ride from Dover through the Isle of Thanet by Canterbury and Faversham across to Maidstone up to Tunbridge through the Weald of Kent and over the hills by Westerham and Hayes to the Wen. Dover, Wednesday, September 3rd, 1823, evening. On Monday I was balancing in my own mind whether I should go to France or not. Today I have decided the question in the negative, and shall set off this evening for the Isle of Thanet, that spot so famous for corn. I broke off without giving an account of the country between Folkestone and Dover, which is a very interesting one in itself and was peculiarly interesting to me on many accounts. I have often mentioned, in describing the parts of the country over which I have travelled, I have often mentioned the chalk ridge, and also the sand ridge which I had traced, running parallel with each other, from about Farnham in Surrey to Sevenoaks in Kent. The reader must remember how particular I have been to observe that, in going up from Chilworth and Albury, through Dorking, Reigate, Godston, and so on, the two chains of ridges approach so near to each other, that in many places you actually have a chalk-bank to your right, and a sand-bank to your left, at not more than forty yards from each other. In some places these chains of hills run off from each other to a great distance, even to a distance of twenty miles. They then approach again towards each other, and so they go on. I was always desirous to ascertain whether these chains or ridges continued on thus to the sea. I have now found that they do. And, if you go out into the channel at Folkestone, there you see a sand-cliff and a chalk-cliff. Folkestone stands upon the sand, in a little dell about seven hundred or eight hundred yards from the very termination of the ridge. All the way along the chalk-ridge is the most lofty, until you come to Leith Hill and Hindhead, and here, at Folkestone, the sand-ridge tapers off in a sort of flat towards the sea. The land is like what it is at Reigate, a very steep hill, a hill of full a mile high and bending exactly in the same manner as the hill at Reigate does. The turnpike road winds up it and goes over it in exactly the same manner as that at Reigate. The land to the south of the hill begins a poor thin white loam upon the chalk, soon gets to be a very fine rich loam upon the chalk, goes on till it mingles the chalky loam with the sandy loam, and thus it goes on down to the sea beach or to the edge of the cliff. It is a beautiful bed of earth here, resembling in extent that on the south side of Portsdown Hill rather than that of Reigate. The crops here are always good, if they are good anywhere. A large part of this fine tract of land, as well as the little town of Sandgate, which is a beautiful little place upon the beach itself, and also a great part of the town of Folkestone belong, they tell me, to Lord Radnor, who takes his title of Viscount from Folkestone. Upon the hill begins, and continues on for some miles, that stiff red loam approaching to a clay, which I have several times described as forming the soil at the top of this chalk ridge. I spoke of it in the register of the 16th of August last, page 409, and I then said that it was like the land on the top of this very ridge at Ashmansworth, in the north of Hampshire. At Reigate you find precisely the same soil upon the top of the hill, a very red, clayey sort of loam, with big yellow flintstones in it. Everywhere the soil is the same upon the top of the high part of this ridge. I have now found it to be the same on the edge of the sea that I found it on the northeast corner of Hampshire. From the hill you keep descending all the way to Dover, a distance of about six miles, and it is absolutely six miles of downhill. 
on your right you have the lofty land which forms a series of chalk cliffs from the top of which you look into the sea on your left you have ground that goes rising up from you in the same sort of way the turnpike road goes down the middle of a valley each side of which as far as you can see may be about a mile and a half it is six miles long you will remember and here therefore with very little interruption very few chasms there are eighteen square miles of corn it is a pack such as you very seldom see and especially of corn so good as it is here i should think that the wheat all along here would average pretty nearly four quarters to the acre a few oats are sown a great deal of barley and that a very fine crop the town of dover is like other seaport towns but really much more clean and with less blackguard people in it than i ever observed in any seaport before it is a most picturesque place to be sure on one side of it rises upon the top of a very steep hill the old castle with all its fortifications on the other side of it there is another chalk hill the side of which is pretty nearly perpendicular and rises up from sixty to a hundred feet higher than the tops of the houses which stand pretty nearly close to the foot of the hill i got into dover rather late it was dusk when i was going down the street towards the quay i happened to look up and was quite astonished to perceive cows grazing upon a spot apparently fifty feet above the tops of the houses and measuring horizontally not perhaps more than ten or twenty feet from a line which would have formed a continuation into the air i went up to the same spot the next day myself and you actually look down upon the houses as you look out of a window upon people in the street the valley that runs down from folkestone is when it gets to dover crossed by another valley that runs down from canterbury or at least from the canterbury direction it is in the gorge of this cross valley that dover is built the two chalk hills jut out into the sea and the water that comes up between them forms a harbour for this ancient most interesting and beautiful place on the hill to the north stands the castle of dover which is fortified in the ancient manner except on the sea-side where it has the steep cliff for fortification on the south side of the town the hill is i believe rather more lofty than that on the north side and here is that cliff which is described by shakespeare in the play of king lear it is fearfully steep certainly very nearly perpendicular for a considerable distance the grass grows well to the very tip of the cliff and you see cows and sheep grazing there with as much unconcern as if grazing in the bottom of a valley it was not however these natural curiosities that took me over this hill i went to see with my own eyes something of the sorts of means that had been made use of to squander away countless millions of money here is a hill containing probably a couple of square miles or more hollowed like a honeycomb here are line upon line trench upon trench cavern upon cavern bomb-proof upon bomb-proof in short the very sight of the thing convinces you that either madness the most humiliating or profligacy the most scandalous must have been at work here for years the question that every man of sense asks is what reason had you to suppose that the french could ever come to this hill to attack it while the rest of the country was so much more easy to assail however let any man of good plain understanding go and look at the works that have here been performed and that are now all tumbling into ruin let him ask what this cavern was for what that ditch was for what this tank was for and why all these horrible holes and hiding-places at an expense of millions upon millions let this scene be brought and placed under the eyes of the people of england and let them be told that pitt and dundas and percival had these things done to prevent the country from being conquered with voice unanimous the nation would instantly exclaim let the french or let the devil take us rather than let us resort to means of defence like these this is perhaps the only set of fortifications in the world ever framed for mere hiding there is no appearance of any intention to annoy an enemy it is a parcel of holes made in a hill to hide englishmen from frenchmen just as if the frenchmen would come to this hill 
just as if they would not go if they came at all and land in romney marsh or on pevensey level or anywhere else rather than come to this hill rather than come to crawl up shakespeare's cliff all the way along the coast from this very hill to portsmouth or pretty nearly all the way is a flat what the devil should they come to this hill for then and when you ask this question they tell you that it is to have an army here behind the french after they had marched into the country and for a purpose like this for a purpose so stupid so senseless so mad as this and withal so scandalously disgraceful more brick and stone have been buried in this hill than would go to build a neat new cottage for every labouring man in the counties of kent and of sussex dreadful is the scourge of such ministers however those who supported them will now have to suffer the money must have been squandered purposely and for the worst ends fool as pitt was unfit as an old hack of a lawyer like dundas was to judge of the means of defending the country stupid as both these fellows were and as their brother lawyer percival was too unfit as these lawyers were to judge in any such a case they must have known that this was an useless expenditure of money they must have known that and therefore their general folly their general ignorance is no apology for their conduct what they wanted was to prevent the landing not of frenchmen but of french principles that is to say to prevent the example of the french from being alluring to the people of england the devil a bit did they care for the bourbons they rejoiced at the killing of the king they rejoiced at the atheistical decree they rejoiced at everything calculated to alarm the timid and to excite horror in the people of england in general they wanted to keep out of england those principles which had a natural tendency to destroy boroughmongering and to put an end to peculation and plunder no matter whether by the means of martello towers making a great chalk hill a honeycomb cutting a canal thirty feet wide to stop the march of the armies of the danube and the rhine no matter how they squandered the money so that it silenced some and made others bawl to answer their great purpose of preventing french example from having an influence in england simply their object was this to make the french people miserable to force back the bourbons upon them as a means of making them miserable to degrade france to make the people wretched and then to have to say to the people of england look there see what they have got by their attempts to obtain liberty this was the object they did not want martello towers and honeycomb chalk hills and mad canals they did not want these to keep out the french armies the boroughmongers and the parsons cared nothing about the french armies it was the french example that the lawyers boroughmongers and parsons wished to keep out and what have they done it is impossible to be upon this honeycombed hill upon this enormous mass of anti-jacobin expenditure without seeing the chalk cliffs of calais and the cornfields of france at this season it is impossible to see those fields without knowing that the farmers are getting in their corn there as well as here and it is impossible to think of that fact without reflecting at the same time on the example which the farmers of france hold out to the farmers of england looking down from this very anti-jacobin hill this day i saw the parson's shocks of wheat and barley left in the field after the farmer had taken his away turning my head and looking across the channel there said i pointing to france there the spirited and sensible people have ridded themselves of this burden of which our farmers so bitterly complain it is impossible not to recollect here that in numerous petitions sent up too by the loyal complaints have been made that the english farmer has to carry on a competition against the french farmer who has no tithes to pay well loyal gentlemen why do not you petition then to be relieved from tithes what do you mean else do you mean to call upon our big gentlemen at whitehall for them to compel the french to pay tithes oh you loyal fools better hold your tongues about the french not paying tithes better do that at any rate for never will they pay tithes again 
here is a large tract of land upon these hills at dover which is the property of the public having been purchased at an enormous expense this is now let out as pasture land to people of the town i dare say that the letting of this land is a curious affair if there were a member for dover who would do what he ought to do he would soon get before the public a list of the tenants and of the rents paid by them i should like very much to see such list butterworth the bookseller in fleet street he who is a sort of metropolitan of the methodists is one of the members for dover the other is i believe that wilbraham or bootle or bootle wilbraham or some such name that is a lancashire magistrate so that dover is prettily set up however there is nothing of this sort that can in the present state of things be deemed to be of any real consequence as long as the people at whitehall can go on paying the interest of the debt in full so long will there be no change worth the attention of any rational man in the meanwhile the french nation will be going on rising over us and our ministers will be cringing and crawling to every nation upon earth who is known to possess a cannon or a barrel of powder this very day i read mr canning's speech at liverpool with a yankee consul sitting on his right hand not a word now about the bits of bunting and the fur frigates but now america is the lovely daughter who in a moment of excessive love has gone off with a lover to wit the french and left the tender mother to mourn what a fop and this is the man that talks so big and so bold this is the clever the profound the blustering too and above all things the high-spirited mr canning however more of this hereafter i must get from this dover as fast as i can sandwich wednesday third september night i got to this place about half an hour after the ringing of the eight o'clock bell or curfew which i heard at about two miles distance from the place from the town of dover you come up the castle hill and have a most beautiful view from the top of it you have the sea the chalk cliffs of calais the high land at boulogne the town of dover just under you the valley towards folkestone and the much more beautiful valley towards canterbury and going on a little further you have the downs and the essex or suffolk coast in full view with a most beautiful corn country to ride along through the corn was chiefly cut between dover and walmer the barley almost all cut and tied up in sheaf nothing but the beans seem to remain standing along here they are not quite so good as the rest of the corn but they are by no means bad when i came to the village of walmer i inquired for the castle that famous place where pitt dundas percival and all the whole tribe of plotters against the french revolution had carried on their plots after coming through the village of walmer you see the entrance of the castle away to the right it is situated pretty nearly on the water's edge and at the bottom of a little dell about a furlong or so from the turnpike road this is now the habitation of our great minister robert banks jenkinson son of charles of that name when i was told by a girl who was leasing in a field by the roadside that that was walmer castle i stopped short pulled my horse round looked steadfastly at the gateway and could not help exclaiming o oh, thou who inhabitest that famous dwelling thou who hast always been in place let who might be out of place o oh, thou everlasting place-man thou sage of overproduction do but cast thine eyes upon this barley-field where if i am not greatly deceived there are from seven to eight quarters upon the acre o oh, thou whose courier newspaper has just informed its readers that wheat will be seventy shillings the quarter in the month of november o oh, thou wise man i pray thee come forth from thy castle and tell me what thou wilt do if wheat should happen to be at the appointed time thirty-five shillings instead of seventy shillings the quarter sage of overproduction farewell if thou hast life thou wilt be minister as long as thou canst pay the interest of the debt in full but not one moment longer the moment thou ceasest to be able to squeeze from the normans a sufficiency to count down to the jews their full tale that moment thou great stern path of duty man thou wilt begin to be taught the true meaning of the words ministerial responsibility 
Deal is a most villainous place. It is full of filthy-looking people. Great desolation of abomination has been going on here. Tremendous barracks, partly pulled down, and partly tumbling down, and partly occupied by soldiers. Everything seems upon the perish. I was glad to hurry along through it, and to leave its inns and public-houses, to be occupied by the tarred and trousered, and blue and buff crew, whose very vicinage I always detest. From Deal you come along to Upper Deal, which, it seems, was the original village, thence upon a beautiful road to Sandwich, which is a rotten borough. Rottenness, putridity, is excellent for land, but bad for boroughs. This place, which is as villainous a hole as one would wish to see, is surrounded by some of the finest land in the world. Along on one side of it lies a marsh. On the other sides of it is land which they tell me bears seven quarters of wheat to an acre. It is certainly very fine, for I saw large pieces of radish seed on the roadside. This seed is grown for the seedsmen in London, and it will grow on none but rich land. All the corn is carried here except some beans and some barley. Canterbury, Thursday afternoon, 4th September. In quitting Sandwich you immediately cross a river, up which vessels bring coals from the sea. This marsh is about a couple of miles wide. It begins at the sea beach, opposite the downs, to my right hand, coming from Sandwich, and it wheels round to my left and ends at the sea beach, opposite Margate Roads. This marsh was formerly covered with the sea, very likely, and hence the land within this sort of semicircle, the name of which is Thanet, was called an isle. It is, in fact, an island now, for the same reason that Portsea is an island, and that New York is an island, for there certainly is the water in this river that goes round and connects one part of the sea with the other. I had to cross this river and to cross the marsh before I got into the famous Isle of Thanet, which it was my intention to cross. Soon after crossing the river I passed by a place for making salt, and could not help recollecting that there are no excise men in these salt-making places in France, that, before the revolution, the French were most cruelly oppressed by the duties on salt, that they had to endure on that account the most horrid tyranny that ever was known, except perhaps that practised in an exchequer that shall here be nameless, that thousands and thousands of men and women were every year sent to the galleys for what was called smuggling salt, that the fathers and even the mothers were imprisoned or whipped if the children were detected in smuggling salt. I could not help reflecting with delight as I looked at these salt pans in the Isle of Thanet. I could not help reflecting that in spite of Pitt, Dundas, Percival, and the rest of the crew, in spite of the caverns of Dover and the Martello Towers in Romney Marsh, in spite of all the spies and all the bayonets, and the six hundred millions of debt and the hundred and fifty millions of dead weight, and the two hundred millions of poor rates that are now squeezing the borough-mongers, squeezing the farmers, puzzling the fellows at Whitehall, and making Mark Lane a scene of greater interest than the chamber of the Privy Council. With delight, as I jogged along under the first beams of the sun, I reflected that, in spite of all the malignant measures that had brought so much misery upon England, the gallant French people had ridded themselves of the tyranny which sent them to the galleys for endeavouring to use without tax the salt which God sent upon their shores. Can any man tell why we should still be paying five or six or seven shillings a bushel for salt, instead of one? We did pay fifteen shillings a bushel tax. And why is two shillings a bushel kept on? Because if they were taken off, the salt-tax-gathering crew must be discharged. This tax of two shillings a bushel causes the consumer to pay five at the least more than he would if there were no tax at all. When, great God, when shall we be allowed to enjoy God's gifts in freedom as the people of France enjoy them? On the marsh I found the same sort of sheep as on Romney Marsh, but the cattle here are chiefly Welsh, black and called runts. They are nice hardy cattle, and I am told that this is the description of cattle that they fat all the way up on this north side of Kent. When I got upon the corn-land in the Isle of Thanet I got into a garden indeed. There is hardly any fallow, comparatively few turnips. It is a country of corn. 
most of the harvest is in but there are some fields of wheat and of barley not yet housed a great many pieces of lucerne and all of them very fine i left ramsgate to my right about three miles and went right across the island to margate but that place is so thickly settled with stock-jobbing cuckolds at this time of the year that having no fancy to get their horns stuck into me i turned away to my left when i got within about half a mile of the town i got to a little hamlet where i breakfasted but could get no corn for my horse and no bacon for myself all was corn around me barns i should think two hundred feet long ricks of enormous size and most numerous crops of wheat five quarters to an acre on the average and a public-house without either bacon or corn the labourers houses all along through this island beggarly in the extreme the people dirty poor-looking ragged but particularly dirty the men and boys with dirty faces and dirty smock-frocks and dirty shirts and good god what a difference between the wife of a labouring man here and the wife of a labouring man in the forests and woodlands of hampshire and sussex invariably have i observed that the richer the soil and the more destitute of woods that is to say the more purely a corn country the more miserable the labourers the cause is this the great the big bull-frog grasps all in this beautiful island every inch of land is appropriated by the rich no hedges no ditches no commons no grassy lanes a country divided into great farms a few trees surround the great farmhouse all the rest is bare of trees and the wretched labourer has not a stick of wood and has no place for a pig or cow to graze or even to lie down upon the rabbit countries are the countries for labouring men there the ground is not so valuable there it is not so easily appropriated by the few here in this island the work is almost all done by the horses the horses plough the ground they sow the ground they hoe the ground they carry the corn home they thresh it out and they carry it to market nay in this island they rake the ground they rake up the straggling straws and ears so that they do the whole except the reaping and the mowing it is impossible to have an idea of anything more miserable than the state of the labourers in this part of the country after coming by margate i passed a village called monkton and another called sar at sar there is a bridge over which you come out of the island as you go into it over the bridge at sandwich at monkton they had seventeen men working on the roads though the harvest was not quite in and though of course it had all to be threshed out but at monkton they had four threshing machines and they have three threshing machines at sar though there also they have several men upon the roads this is a shocking state of things and in spite of everything that the jenkinsons and the scots can do the state of things must be changed at sar or a little way further back i saw a man who had just begun to reap a field of canary seed the plants were too far advanced to be cut in order to be bleached for the making of plat but i got the reaper to select me a few green stalks that grew near a bush that stood on the outside of the piece these i have brought on with me in order to give them a trial at sar i began to cross the marsh and had after this to come through the village of upstreet and another village called steady before i got to canterbury at upstreet i was struck with the words written upon a board which was fastened upon a pole which pole was standing in a garden near a neat little box of a house the words were these paradise place spring guns and steel traps are set here a pretty idea it must give us of paradise to know that spring guns and steel traps are set in it this is doubtless some stock jobbers place for in the first place the name is likely to have been selected by one of that crew and in the next place whenever any of them go to the country they look upon it that they are to begin a sort of warfare against everything around them they invariably look upon every labourer as a thief as you approach canterbury from the isle of thanet you have another instance of the squanderings of the lawyer ministers nothing equals the ditches the caverns the holes the tanks and hiding-places of the hill at dover but considerable as the city of canterbury is that city within its gates stands upon less ground than those horrible erections the barracks of pitt dundas and percival 
They are perfectly enormous, but thanks be unto God they begin to crumble down. They have a sickly hue, all is lassitude about them, endless are their lawns, their gravel walks and their ornaments, but their lawns are unshaven, their gravel walks grassy, and their ornaments putting on the garments of ugliness. You see the grass growing opposite the doorways, a hole in the window strikes you here and there, lamp-posts there are, but no lamps. Here are horse-barracks, foot-barracks, artillery-barracks, engineer-barracks, a whole country of barracks, but only here and there a soldier. The thing is actually perishing. It is typical of the state of the great thing of things. It gave me inexpressible pleasure to perceive the gloom that seemed to hang over these barracks, which once swarmed with soldiers and their blithe companions, as a hive swarms with bees. These barracks now look like the environs of a hive in winter. Westminster Abbey Church is not the place for the monument of Pitt, the statue of the great snorting baller, or to be stuck up here, just in the midst of this hundred or two of acres covered with barracks. These barracks, too, were erected in order to compel the French to return to the payment of tithes, in order to bring their necks again under the yoke of the lords and the clergy. That has not been accomplished. The French, as Mr. Hoggart assures us, have neither tithes, taxes, nor rates, and the people of Canterbury know that they have a hop duty to pay, while Mr. Hoggart of Broad Street tells them that he has farms to let in France, where there are hop-gardens and where there is no hop-duty. They have lately had races at Canterbury, and the mayor and aldermen, in order to get the Prince Leopold to attend them, presented him with the freedom of the city, but it rained all the time, and he did not come. The mayor and aldermen do not understand things half so well as this German gentleman, who has managed his matters as well, I think, as any one that I ever heard of. This fine old town, or rather city, is remarkable for cleanliness and niceness, notwithstanding it has a cathedral in it. The country round it is very rich, and this year, while the hops are so bad in most other parts, they are not so very bad, just about Canterbury. Elverton Farm, near Faversham, Friday morning, September 5th. In going through Canterbury yesterday, I gave a boy sixpence to hold my horse, while I went into the cathedral, just to thank St. Swithin for the trick that he had played my friends, the Quakers, led along by the wet weather till after the harvest had actually begun, and then to find the weather turn fine, all of a sudden, this must have soused them pretty decently, and I hear of one who at Canterbury has made a bargain by which he will certainly lose two thousand pounds. The land where I am now is equal to that of the Isle of Thanet. The harvest is nearly over, and all the crops have been prodigiously fine. In coming from Canterbury you come to the top of a hill, called Wharton Hill, at four miles from Canterbury on the London Road, and you there look down into one of the finest flats in England. A piece of marsh comes up nearly to Faversham, and at the edge of that marsh lies the farm where I now am. The land here is a deep loam upon chalk, and this is also the nature of the land in the Isle of Thanet, and all the way from that to Dover. The orchards grow well upon this soil, the trees grow finely, the fruit is large and of fine flavour. In 1821 I gave Mr. William Waller, who lives here, some American apple cuttings, and he has now some as fine Newton pippins as one would wish to see. They are very large of their sort, very free in their growth, and they promise to be very fine apples of the kind. Mr. Waller had cuttings from me of several sorts in 1822. These were cut down last year. They have, of course, made shoots this summer, and great numbers of these shoots have fruit spurs, which will have blossom, if not fruit, next year. This very rarely happens, I believe, and the state of Mr. Waller's trees clearly proves to me that the introduction of these American trees would be a great improvement. My American apples, when I left Kensington, promised to be very fine, and the apples which I frequently mentioned as being upon cuttings imported last spring promised to come to perfection, a thing which I believe we have not an instance of before. Merryworth, Friday evening, 5th September. 
a friend attended and told me that if i had a mind to know kent i must go through romney marsh to dover from dover to sandwich from sandwich to margate from margate to canterbury from canterbury to faversham from faversham to maidstone and from maidstone to tunbridge i found from mr waller this morning that the regular turnpike route from his house to maidstone was through sittingbourne i had been along that road several times and besides to be covered with dust was what i could not think of when i had it in my power to get to maidstone without it i took the road across the country quitting the london road or rather crossing it in the dell between Ospring and green street i instantly began to go uphill slowly indeed but uphill i came through the villages of newnham doddington ringleston and to that of hollingbourne i had come uphill for thirteen miles from mr waller's house at last i got to the top of this hill and went along for some distance upon level ground i found i was got upon just the same sort of land as that on the hill at folkestone at reigate at ropley and at ashmansworth the red clayey loam mixed up with great yellow flintstones i found fine meadows here just such as are at ashmansworth that is to say on the north hampshire hills this sort of ground is characterized by an astonishing depth that they have to go for the water at ashmansworth they go to a depth of more than three hundred feet as i was riding along upon the top of this hill in kent i saw the same beautiful sort of meadows that there are at ashmansworth i saw the corn backward i was just thinking to go up to some house to ask how far they had to go for water when i saw a large well bucket and all the chains and wheels belonging to such a concern but here was also the tackle for a horse to work in drawing up the water i asked about the depth of the well and the information i received must have been incorrect because i was told it was three hundred yards i asked this of a public-house keeper further on not seeing anybody where the farmhouse was i make no doubt that the depth is as near as possible that of ashmansworth upon the top of this hill i saw the finest field of beans that i have seen this year and by very far indeed the finest piece of hops a beautiful piece of hops surrounded by beautiful plantations of young ash producing poles for hop gardens my road here pointed towards the west it soon wheeled round towards the south and all of a sudden i found myself upon the edge of a hill as lofty and as steep as that at folkestone at reigate or at ashmansworth it was the same famous chalk ridge that i was crossing again when i got to the edge of the hill and before i got off my horse to lead him down this more than mile of hill i sat and surveyed the prospect before me and to the right and to the left this is what the people of kent call the garden of eden it is a district of meadows cornfields hop gardens and orchards of apples pears cherries and filberts with very little if any land which cannot with propriety be called good there are plantations of chestnut and of ash frequently occurring and as these are cut when long enough to make poles for hops they are at all times objects of great beauty at the foot of the hill of which i have been speaking is the village of hollingburn thence you come on to maidstone from maidstone to this place meriworth is about seven miles and these are the finest seven miles that i have ever seen in england or anywhere else the medway is to your left with its meadows about a mile wide you cross the medway in coming out of maidstone and it goes and finds its way down to rochester through a break in the chalk ridge from maidstone to meriworth i should think that there were hop gardens on one half of the way on both sides of the road then looking across the medway you see hop gardens and orchards two miles deep on the side of a gently rising ground and this continues with you all the way from maidstone to meriworth the orchards form a great feature of the country and the plantations of ashes and of chestnuts that i mentioned before add greatly to the beauty these gardens of hops are kept very clean in general though some of them have been neglected this year owing to the bad appearance of the crop the culture is sometimes mixed that is to say apple trees or cherry trees or filbert trees and hops in the same ground 
this is a good way they say of raising an orchard i do not believe it and i think that nothing is gained by any of these mixtures they plant apple-trees or cherry-trees in rows here they then plant a filbert-tree close to each of these large fruit-trees and then they cultivate the middle of the ground by planting potatoes this has been too greedy it is impossible that they can gain by this what they gain one way they lose the other way and i verily believe that the most profitable way would be never to mix things at all in coming from maidstone i passed through a village called teston where lord basham has a seat tunbridge saturday morning six september i came off from merryworth a little before five o'clock passed the seat of lord torrington the friend of mr barretto this mr barretto ought not to be forgotten so soon in eighteen twenty he sued for articles of the peace against lord torrington for having menaced him in consequence of his having pressed his lordship about some money it seems that lord torrington had known him in the east indies that they came home together or soon after one another that his lordship invited mr barretto to his best parties in india that he got him introduced at court in england by sidmouth that he got him made a fellow of the royal society and that he tried to get him introduced into parliament his lordship when barretto rudely pressed him for his money reminded him of all this and of the many difficulties that he had had to overcome with regard to his colour and so forth nevertheless the dingy-skinned court visitant pressed in such a way that lord torrington was obliged to be pretty smart with him whereupon the other sued for articles of the peace against his lordship but these were not granted by the court this barretto issued a handbill at the last election as a candidate for st albans i am truly sorry that he was not elected lord camelford threatened to put in his black fellow but he was a sad swaggering fellow and had at last too much of the boroughmonger in him to do a thing so meritorious lord torrington's is but an indifferent-looking place i here began to see southdown sheep again which i had not seen since the time i left tenterden all along here the villages are not more than two miles distance from each other they have all large churches and scarcely anybody to go to them at a village called hadlow there is a house belonging to a mr may the most singular-looking thing i ever saw an immense house stuck all over with a parcel of chimneys or things like chimneys little brick columns with a sort of caps on them looking like carnation sticks with caps at the top to catch the earwigs the building is all of brick and has the oddest appearance of anything i ever saw this tunbridge is but a common country town though very clean and the people looking very well the climate must be pretty warm here for in entering the town i saw a large althea frutex in bloom a thing rare enough any year and particularly a year like this Westrum, saturday noon six september instead of going on to the wen along the turnpike road through sevenoaks i turned to my left when i got about a mile out of tunbridge in order to come along that tract of country called the weald of kent that is to say the solid clays which have no bottom which are unmixed with chalk sand stone or anything else the country of dirty roads and of oak trees i stopped at tunbridge only a few minutes but in the weald i stopped to breakfast at a place called lee from lee i came to chittingstone causeway leaving tunbridge wells six miles over the hills to my left from chittingstone i came to bow beach thence to four elms and thence to this little market town of westerham which is just upon the border of kent indeed kent surrey and sussex form adjoining very near to this town westerham exactly like reigate and godston and sevenoaks and dorking and folkestone lies between the sand ridge and the chalk ridge the valley is here a little wider than at reigate and that is all the difference there is between the places as soon as you get over the sand-hill to the south of reigate you get into the weald of surrey and here as soon as you get over the sand-hill to the south of westerham you get into the weald of kent i have now in order to get to the wen to cross the chalk ridge once more and at a point where i never crossed it before coming through the weald i found the corn very good and low as the ground is wet as it is 
cold as it is, there will be very little of the wheat which will not be housed before Saturday night. All the corn is good, and the barley excellent. Not far from Bow Beach I saw two oak trees, one of which was, they told me, more than thirty feet round, and the other more than twenty-seven, but they have been hollow for half a century. They are not much bigger than the oak upon Tilford Green, if any, I mean in the trunk, but they are hollow, while that tree is sound in all its parts and growing still. I have had a most beautiful ride through the weald. The day is very hot, but I have been in the shade, and my horse's feet very often in the rivulets and wet lanes. In one place I rode above a mile completely arched over by the boughs of the underwood, growing in the banks of the lane. What an odd taste that man must have who prefers a turnpike road to a lane like this! Very near to Westerham there are hops, and I have seen now and then a little bit of hop-garden, even in the weald. Hops will grow well where lucerne will grow well, and lucerne will grow well where there is a rich top and a dry bottom. When therefore you see hops in the weald, it is on the side of some hill, where there is sand or stone at bottom, and not where there is real clay beneath. There appear to be hops here and there all along from nearly at Dover to Alton in Hampshire. You find them all along Kent. You find them at Westerham, across at Worth in Sussex, at Godston in Surrey, over to the north of Merrow Down, near Guildford, at Godalming, under the Hogsback, at Farnham, and all along that way to Alton. But there, I think, they end. The whole face of the country seems to rise when you get just beyond Alton, and to keep up. Whether you look to the north, the south, or west, the land seems to rise and the hops cease, till you come again away to the north-west, in Herefordshire. Kensington, Saturday night, 6 September. Here I close my day at the end of forty-four miles. In coming up the chalk hill from Westerham, I prepared myself for the red, stiff, clay-like loam, the big yellow flints and the meadows, and I found them all. I have now gone over this chalk ridge in the following places, at Coombe in the north-west of Hampshire, I mean the north-west corner, the very extremity of the county. I have gone over it at Ashmansworth, or Highclere, going from Newbury to Andover, at Kingsclere, going from Newbury to Winchester, at Ropley, going from Alresford to Selborne, at Dippinghall, going from Crondall to Thursley, at Merrow, going from Chertsey to Chilworth, at Reigate, at Westerham, and then between these at Godston, at Sevenoaks, going from London to Battle, at Hollingburn, as mentioned above, and at Folkestone. In all these places I have crossed this chalk ridge. Everywhere upon the top of it I have found a flat, and the soil of all these flats I have found to be a red stiff loam mingled up with big yellow flints. A soil difficult to work, but by no means bad, whether for wood, hops, grass, orchards, or corn. I once before mentioned that I was assured that the pasture upon these bleak hills was as rich as that which is found in the north of Wiltshire, in the neighbourhood of Swindon, where they make some of the best cheese in the kingdom. Upon these hills I have never found the labouring people poor and miserable, as in the rich vales. All is not appropriated where there are coppices and wood, where the cultivation is not so easy, and the produce so very large. After getting up the hill from Westerham, I had a general descent to perform all the way to the Thames. When you get to Beckenham, which is the last parish in Kent, the country begins to assume a cockney-like appearance. All is artificial, and you no longer feel any interest in it. I was anxious to make this journey into Kent in the midst of harvest, in order that I might know the real state of the crops. The result of my observations and my inquiries is that the crop is a full average crop of everything except barley, and that the barley yields a great deal more than an average crop. I thought that the beans were very poor during my ride into Hampshire, but I then saw no real bean countries. I have seen such countries now, and I do not think that the beans present us with a bad crop. As to the quality, it is, in no case, except perhaps the barley, equal to that of last year. 
we had last year an italian summer when the wheat or other grain has to ripen in wet weather it will not be bright as it will when it has to ripen in fair weather it will have a dingy or clouded appearance and perhaps the flour may not be quite so good the wheat in fact will not be so heavy in order to enable others to judge as well as myself i took samples from the fields as i went along i took them very fairly and as often as i thought that there was any material change in the soil or other circumstances during the ride i took sixteen samples these are now at the office of the register in fleet street where they may be seen by any gentleman who thinks the information likely to be useful to him the samples are numbered and there is a reference pointing out the place where each sample was taken the opinions that i gather amount to this that there is an average crop of everything and a little more of barley now then we shall see how all this tallies with the schemes with the intentions and expectations of our matchless gentlemen at whitehall these wise men have put forth their views in the courier of the twenty seventh of august and in words which ought never to be forgotten and which at any rate shall be recorded here grain during the present unsettled state of the weather it is impossible for the best informed persons to anticipate upon good grounds what will be the future price of agricultural produce should the season even yet prove favourable for the operations of the harvest there is every probability of the average price of grain continuing at that exact price which will prove most conducive to the interests of the corn growers and at the same time encouraging to the agriculture of our colonial possessions we do not speak lightly on this subject for we are aware that his majesty's ministers have been fully alive to the inquiries from all qualified quarters as to the effect likely to be produced on the markets from the addition of the present crops to the stock of wheat already on hand the result of these inquiries is that in the highest quarters there exists the full expectation that towards the month of november the price of wheat will nearly approach to seventy shillings a price which while it affords the extent of remuneration to the british farmer recognised by the corn laws will at the same time admit of the sale of the canadian bonded wheat and the introduction of this foreign corn grown by british colonists will contribute to keeping down our markets and exclude foreign grain from other quarters there's nice gentlemen of whitehall what pretty gentlemen they are envy of surrounding nations indeed to be under command of pretty gentlemen who can make calculations so nice and put forth predictions so positive upon a subject admiration of the world indeed to live under the command of men who can so control seasons and markets or at least who can so dive into the secrets of trade and find out the contents of the fields barns and ricks as to be able to balance things so nicely as to cause the canadian corn to find a market without injuring the sale of that of the british farmer and without admitting that of the french farmer and the other farmers of the continent happy too happy rogues that we are to be under the guidance of such pretty gentlemen and right just is it that we should be banished for life if we utter a word tending to bring such pretty gentlemen into contempt let it be observed that this paragraph must have come from whitehall this wretched paper is the demi-official organ of the government as to the owners of the paper daniel stewart that notorious fellow street and the rest of them not excluding the brother of the great oracle which brother bought the other day a share of this vehicle of baseness and folly as to these fellows they have no control other than what relates to the expenditure and the receipts of the vehicle they get their news from the officers of the whitehall people and their paper is the mouthpiece of those same people mark this i pray you reader and let the french people mark it too and then take their revenge for the waterloo insolence this being the case then this paragraph proceeding from the pretty gentleman 
what a light it throws on their expectations their hopes and their fears they see that wheat at seventy shillings a quarter is necessary to them ah pray mark that they see that wheat at seventy shillings a quarter is necessary to them and therefore they say that wheat will be at seventy shillings a quarter the price as they call it necessary to remunerate the british farmer and how do the conjurers at whitehall know this why they have made full inquiries in qualified quarters and the qualified quarters have satisfied the highest quarters that towards the month of november the price of wheat will nearly approach to seventy shillings the quarter i wonder what the words towards the end of november may mean devil's in it if middle of september is not towards november and the wheat instead of going on towards seventy shillings is very fast coming down to forty the beast who wrote this paragraph the pretty beast this envy of surrounding nations wrote it on the twenty seventh of august a soaking wet saturday the pretty beast was not aware that the next day was going to be fine and that we were to have only the succeeding tuesday and half the following saturday of wet weather until the whole of the harvest should be in the pretty beast wrote while the rain was spattering against the window and he did not speak lightly but was fully aware that the highest quarters having made inquiries of the qualified quarters were sure that wheat would be at seventy shillings during the ensuing year what will be the price of wheat it is impossible for any one to say i know a gentleman who is a very good judge of such matters who is of opinion that the average price of wheat will be thirty-two shillings a quarter or lower before christmas this is not quite half what the highest quarters expect in consequence of the inquiries which they have made of the qualified quarters i do not say that the average of wheat will come down to thirty-two shillings but this i know that at reading last saturday about forty-five shillings was the price and i hear that in norfolk the price is forty-two the highest quarters in the infamous london press will at any rate be prettily exposed before christmas also thomas lethbridge too and gaffer gooch and his base tribe of pittites at ipswich coke and suffield and their crew all these will be prettily laughed at and all that tall soul lord milton escape being reminded of his profound and patriotic observation relative to this self-renovating country no sooner did he see the wheat get up to sixty or seventy shillings than he lost all his alarms found that all things were right turned his back on yorkshire reformers and went and toiled for scarlet at peterborough and discovered that there was nothing wrong at last and that the self-renovating country would triumph over all its difficulties so it will tall soul it will triumph over all its difficulties it will renovate itself it will purge itself of rotten boroughs of vile borough-mongers their tools and their stop-gaps it will purge itself of all the villainies which now corrode its heart it will in short free itself from those curses which the expenditure of eight or nine hundred millions of english money took place in order to make perpetual it will in short become free from oppression as easy and as happy as the gallant and sensible nation on the other side of the channel this is the sort of renovation but not renovation by the means of wheat at seventy shillings a quarter renovation it will have it will rouse and will shake from itself curses like the pension which is paid to burke's executors this is the sort of renovation tall soul and not wheat at seventy shillings a quarter while it is at twenty-five shillings a quarter in france pray observe reader how the tall soul catched at the rise in the price of wheat how he snapped at it how quickly he ceased his attacks upon the whitehall people and upon the system he thought he had been deceived he thought that things were coming about again and so he drew in his horns and began to talk about the self-renovating country this was the tone of them all this was the tone of all the borough-mongers all the friends of the system all those who like lethbridge had begun to be staggered they had deviated for a moment into our path 
but they popped back again the moment they saw the price of wheat rise all the enemies of reform all the calumniators of reformers all the friends of the system most anxiously desired a rise in the price of wheat mark the curious fact that all the vile press of london the whole of that infamous press that newspapers magazines reviews the whole of the base thing and a baser surely this world never saw that the whole of this base thing rejoiced exulted crowed over me and told an impudent lie in order to have the crowing crowed for what because wheat and bread were become dear a newspaper hatched under a corrupt priest a profligate priest and recently espoused to the hell of pall mall even this vile thing crowed because wheat and bread had become dear now it is notorious that heretofore every periodical publication in this kingdom was in the constant habit of lamenting when bread became dear and of rejoicing when it became cheap this is notorious nay it is equally notorious that this infamous press was everlastingly assailing bakers and millers and butchers for not selling bread flour and meat cheaper than they were selling them in how many hundreds of instances has this infamous press caused attacks to be made by the mob upon tradesmen of this description all these things are notorious moreover notorious it is that long previous to every harvest this infamous this execrable this beastly press was engaged in stunning the public with accounts of the great crop which was just coming forward there was always with this press a prodigiously large crop this was invariably the case it was never known to be the contrary now these things are perfectly well known to every man in england how comes it then reader that the profligate the trading the lying the infamous press of london has now totally changed its tone and bias the base thing never now tells us that there is a great crop or even a good crop it never now wants cheap bread and cheap wheat and cheap meat it never now finds faults of bakers and butchers it now always endeavours to make it appear that corn is dearer than it is the base morning herald about three weeks ago not only suppressed the fact of the fall of wheat but asserted that there had been a rise in the price now why is all this that is a great question reader that is a very interesting question why has this infamous press which always pursues that which it thinks its own interest why has it taken this strange turn this is the reason stupid as the base thing is it has arrived at a conviction that if the price of the produce of the land cannot be kept up to something approaching ten shillings a bushel for good wheat the hellish system of funding must be blown up the infamous press has arrived at a conviction that that cheating that fraudulent system by which this press lives must be destroyed unless the price of corn can be kept up the infamous traders of the press are perfectly well satisfied that the interest of the debt must be reduced unless wheat can be kept up to nearly ten shillings a bushel stupid as they are and stupid as the fellows down at westminster are they know very well that the whole system stock-jobbers jews cant and all go to the devil at once as soon as a deduction is made from the interest of the debt knowing this they want wheat to sell high because it has at last been hammered into their skulls that the interest cannot be paid in full if wheat sells low delightful is the dilemma in which they are dear bread does not suit their manufactories and cheap bread does not suit their debt envy of surrounding nations how hard it is that providence will not enable your farmers to sell dear and the consumers to buy cheap these are the things that you want admiration of the world you are but have these things you will not there may be those indeed who question whether you yourself know what you want but at any rate if you want these things you will not have them before i conclude let me ask the reader to take a look at the singularity of the tone and tricks of this six-axe government 
is it not a novelty in the world to see a government and in ordinary seasons too having its whole soul absorbed in considerations relating to the price of corn there are our neighbours the french who have got a government engaged in taking military possession of a great neighbouring kingdom to free which from these very french we have recently expended a hundred and fifty millions of money our neighbours have got a government that is thus engaged and we have got a government that employs itself in making incessant inquiries in all the qualified quarters relative to the price of wheat curious employment for a government singular occupation for the ministers of the great george they seem to think nothing of spain with its eleven millions of people being in fact added to france wholly insensible do they appear to concerns of this sort while they sit thinking day and night upon the price of the bushel of wheat however they are not after all such fools as they appear to be despicable indeed must be that nation whose safety or whose happiness does in any degree depend on so fluctuating a thing as the price of corn this is a matter that we must take as it comes the seasons will be what they will be and all the calculations of statesmen must be made wholly independent of the changes and chances of seasons this has always been the case to be sure what nation could ever carry on its affairs if it had to take into consideration the price of corn nevertheless such is the situation of our government that its very existence in its present way depends upon the price of corn the pretty fellows at whitehall if you may say to them oh but look at spain look at the enormous strides of the french think of the consequences in case of another war look too at the growing marine of america see mr jenkinson see mr canning see mr huskisson see mr peel and all ye tribe of grenvilles see what tremendous dangers are gathering together about us us ay about you but pray think what tremendous dangers wheat at four shillings a bushel will bring about us this is the git here lies the whole of it we laugh at a government employing itself in making calculations about the price of corn and in employing its press to put forth market puffs we laugh at these things but we should not laugh if we considered that it is on the price of wheat that the duration of the power and the profits of these men depends they know what they want and they wish to believe themselves and to make others believe that they shall have it i have observed before but it is necessary to observe again that all those who are for the system let them be opposition or not opposition feel as whitehall feels about the price of corn i have given an instance in the tall soul but it is the same with the whole of them with the whole of those who do not wish to see this infernal system changed i was informed and i believe it to be true that the marquis of lansdowne said last april when the great rise took place in the price of corn that he had always thought that the cash measures had but little effect on prices but that he was now satisfied that those measures had no effect at all on prices now what is our situation what is the situation of this country if we must have the present ministry or ministry of which the marquis of lansdowne is to be a member if the marquis of lansdowne did utter these words and again i say that i verily believe he did utter them ours is a government that now seems to depend very much upon the weather the old type of a ship at sea will not do now ours is a weather government and to know the state of it we must have recourse to those glasses that the jews carry about weather depends upon the winds in a great measure and i have no scruple to say that the situation of those two right honourable youths that are now gone to the lakes in the north that their situation next winter will be rendered very irksome not to say perilous by the present easterly wind if it should continue about fifteen days longer pitt when he had just made a monstrous issue of paper and had thereby actually put the match which blowed up the old she-devil in seventeen ninety seven pitt at that time congratulated the nation that the wisdom of parliament had established a solid system of finance anything but solid it assuredly was 
but his system of finance was as worthy of being called solid as that system of government which now manifestly depends upon the weather and the winds since my return home it is now thursday eleventh september i have received letters from the east from the north and from the west all tell me that the harvest is very far advanced and that the crops are free from blight these letters are not particular as to the weight of the crop except that they all say that the barley is excellent the wind is now coming from the east there is every appearance of the fine weather continuing before christmas we shall have the wheat down to what will be a fair average price in future i always said that the late rise was a mere puff it was in part a scarcity rise the wheat of eighteen twenty one was grown and bad that of eighteen twenty two had to be begun upon in july the crop has had to last thirteen months and a half the present crop will have to last only eleven months or less the crop of barley last year was so very bad so very small and the crop of the year before so very bad in quality that wheat was malted last year in great quantities instead of barley this year the crop of barley is prodigious all these things considered wheat if the cash measures had had no effect must have been a hundred and forty shillings a quarter and barley eighty yet the first never got to seventy and the latter never got to forty and yet there was a man who calls himself a statesman to say that that mere puff of a rise satisfied him that the cash measures had never had any effect ah they are all afraid to believe in the effect of those cash measures they tremble like children at the sight of the rod when you hold up before them the effect of those cash measures their only hope is that i am wrong in my opinions upon that subject because if i am right their system is condemned to speedy destruction i thus conclude for the present my remarks relative to the harvest and the price of corn it is the great subject of the day and the comfort is that we are now speedily to see whether i be right or whether the marquis of lansdowne be right as to the infamous london press the moment the wheat comes down to forty shillings that is to say an average government return of forty shillings i will spend ten pounds in placarding this infamous press after the manner in which we used to placard the base and detestable enemies of the queen this infamous press has been what is vulgarly called running its rigs for several months past the quakers have been urging it on underhanded they have i understand been bribing it pretty deeply in order to calumniate me and to favour their own monopoly but thank god the cunning knaves have outwitted themselves they won't play at cards but they will play at stocks they will play at lottery tickets and they will play at mark lane they have played a silly game this time since within that good old roman catholic saint seemed to have set a trap for them he went on wet 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 even until the harvest began then after two or three days sunshine shocking wet again the ground soaking the wheat growing and the friends the gentle friends seeking the spirit were as busy amongst the sacks at mark lane as the devil in a high wind in short they bought away with all the gain of godliness and a little more before their eyes all of a sudden since swithin took away his clouds out came the sun the wind got round to the east just sun enough and just wind enough and as the wheat ricks everywhere rose up the long jaws of the quakers dropped down and their faces of slate became of a darker hue that sect will certainly be punished this year and let us hope that such a change will take place in their concerns as will compel a part of them to labour at any rate for at present their sect is a perfect monster in society a whole sect not one man of whom earns his living by the sweat of his brow a sect a great deal worse than the jews for some of them do work however god send us the easterly wind for another fortnight and we shall certainly see some of this sect at work End of chapter 15